Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akashrafi. Today is August 29th, 2022, and I'm speaking with two guests today, Stephen Weldon, who is chair of the Department of the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine at the University of Oklahoma, and has been the editor of the ISIS bibliography since 2002, where he manages various ISIS current bibliography projects, such as the one we're going to discuss today. And also Nirja Sankaran, who is a historian of science and medicine and is co-editor of the special issue on pandemics that we'll be talking about today. Nirja, Stephen, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Baba. Could you describe the theme of this special issue and tell us how readers can access it? Stephen, would you like to go first? So the special issue is about pandemics and epidemics. And it is unique in the sense that this is really the first kind, the first special issue that I have produced for the ISIS bibliography. I have previously produced several thematic essays, but this is a series of thematic essays on this one topic that deals with pandemics and epidemics globally and throughout history, trying to assess the literature, especially the current literature, by historians on this topic. How can readers get a hold of this special issue? It is uh, available online right now at a website where you can look at all of the essays that have been commissioned, read the drafts of the essays and the reviews of those drafts, and the final versions of those accepted essays. In a few months, those accepted essays will be published and made accessible online through the University of Chicago's website at the ISIS journal page. We will put both of those links in the description below for this podcast. Nirja, do you want to add anything about the theme of this special issue? So the theme is summed up in my nickname for the special issue, and certainly more than probably a nickname for this podcast series. I call it scholarship in the time of pandemics, very specifically historical and related scholarship on epidemic and pandemic disease. And really, I think that says it all. The themes within that are very varied, depending on what the expert contributing the essay is talking about. It might be a concept related to the uh, epidemic and pandemic diseases, or it could be a particular time or a particular historical episode of a pandemic outbreak. We have very different sorts of themes. And also, of course, geography, uh, different parts of the world and what studying pandemics in those parts of the world have brought to the field. Nirja, can you say more about the goals for this special issue? How do you imagine scholars using it? When Stephen first described it to me, he also described it as a first-stop resource for readers interested in historical, anthropological, sociological, allied to history, scholarship, so secondary sources as opposed to primary scientific epidemiological literature on epidemics and pandemic diseases. Stephen, do you want to take over and I'll chip back in? 
as the ISIS bibliographer, my goal has been since I started trying to find ways to get scholars into the most relevant literature that they are doing work on, whether it is for research or for teaching. And I think that one of the things that is most difficult when you come to a large bibliography, such as the ISIS current bibliography, which covers all topics, all fields, all time periods, is finding your way through that literature. We have a lot of material on different topics, but what people miss a lot are guides to those literatures. And the reason for the special essays that I have produced, the thematic essays that I've produced in the past, is to help people get into that and to have a whole special issue on pandemics written by some of the top scholars in the field in rather narrow specializations covering, as Nirja mentioned, different topics, different geographical regions and linguistic areas, one can then dive deeply into a set of literature and understand where to go first. Looking at a simple bibliographic list is sometimes very difficult to do, and this helps that. Let's get into some details about how you pursued those goals. Can you tell us about the scholars you recruited to make contributions to this special issue? When Stephen first approached me, what he told me literally was, I'm sitting on this massive database, an absolute gold mine, but I'm not the right miner to extend that metaphor for it because history of medicine isn't really my field. Stephen is historian of scientific humanism. Brilliant topic, but he said, look, I don't know as much about pandemic disease, at least its history, so why don't we get experts to write essays? And I knew a little bit more, I think, because as a historian of science and medicine, and I have a little bit more, or at least knew who the people were, so the first step was to simply send out a call to anybody I knew, send out an explanation of the way Stephen had conceived of the project and said, could you do this? Could you write, uh, put together a bibliography? We'll help with a starter kit if you gave us key words. And the first person who responded was a scholar, Nila, uh, Vivek Nilakantan. And I knew of Vivek, I mean, I sent him the invitation, but the reason I'd asked him is because I knew he did stuff on history of medicine, but I also knew him very specifically as a scholar of Southeast Asia. And it immediately occurred to me that a good focus for his essay, because otherwise it suddenly occurred to me that this got to go all over the place. So how do we start focusing it? So I asked him to write a region-focused essay. And it sort of went from there. Then we thought of other people who were experts in different regions, but also then different time periods. And it just went from there. And of course, there were subject areas, specific diseases, for example. And again, if one went and did bibliographic searches, sometimes I just did bibliograph. I mean, I myself did Google Scholar searches, as well as, of course, ICCB Explore uh, searches, and found out about people writing in a specific area, went and looked a bit more at their papers. And sometimes I was very direct. Hi, would you consider writing this essay? 
Some people said yes, others never answered. Some people just flat out said no. Usually, though not always, if they agreed to a conversation, then they would agree to rate. We did have some people agreeing very enthusiastically, but then, you know, circumstances took over. And then somewhere along the way, it, uh, I asked Stephen, what about scholarship in other languages? Because it's it became increasingly apparent that, you know, in certain countries and certain regions of the world, a lot of scholarship was being done not in English, but in the regional languages. It first came up, I think, in uh, somebody commenting on uh, Vivek's issue, uh, Vivek's essay, that oh, there is actually a lot of interesting literature, but Vivek demarcated his saying, I don't know enough about the historiography. I can read primary sources in that language, but not really the historiography. So, you know, as long as the authors demarcated their limits, it became pretty clear that they were the ones responsible for generating their bibliography. Like I said, we'd help them with the starter kit when they gave us the keywords uh, around their subjects. So that's how it began uh, with different people saying yes or people suggesting other people quite often, you know, especially I would look to experts that I knew who did work in these fields to ask them about other fields or to ask them who else can I ask. And that's how it grew. We did early on create a board of advisors and we also consulted with them on occasion and with individual advisors on specific topics. And if you go to the link that's provided here to, on the special issue, you can see the list of advisors that includes scholars such as Babak, Marta Hansen, Susan Letterer, Gordon McCote, and uh, Suman Seth. So with that small group of people, we had already a network of scholars that we could draw on when the bibliographic and other aspects of the network did not yield anything. And some of the essays came to fruition as a result of connections through that. The other advantage about having this board of advisors is that we could talk with them about how to develop certain aspects of the, of the uh, issue, and we could draw on them to review some submissions that we were in need of extra help on. Stephen, could you tell us about the process for producing this content, which has been a distinctive process? How, how did you organize the production, the submission, the review of the content, and why did you do it this way? Yes, I guess that one aspect of this project that we have not talked about yet, which I think is extremely important, is uh, the open peer review nature of the project. By open peer review, I mean that all of the essays from the initial submission, all of the versions of an essay from the initial submission to the final publication, along with all of the reviews of those essays are online and available for scholars to read. That was done on purpose because in the middle of the pandemic, I felt that it was important to make sure that anyone doing research on this topic, giving a course on the topic, could access some of the material that was originating out of these essays 
quickly. And so by the end of the summer in 2020, we already had some essays online. And I thought that was a great advantage. I employed a scholar here at the University of Oklahoma to help create the website that mount that allowed us to mount these essays and organize them in a way that 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 anybody could get access to so there was this technical component that allowed us to quickly make these essays published in their pre acceptance form and then in the process we were able to to build out this this entire issue as people are watching, essentially. Was speed of production the only motivation for the open review process? It's a good question, and and it was not. We also really wanted to experiment with the very idea of open review in the history of science and medicine communities. What both Nirja and I noticed is that the scientific communities, the natural sciences, use open peer review fairly frequently these days. That's not the case in the humanities. And there were several serious questions among our board of advisors about whether this process would even work for the humanities. And so this was an experiment that we have attempted a successful experiment and one that also yielded some interesting results that I can talk about later if you like. Nirja, did you want to add some thoughts about the production process? Yes. So this open peer review, which Stephen was very keen on right from the start, seemed like a good idea because there's a slight difference between classic peer review of an article versus a bibliographic essay where they're actually, well, not quite co-authors because they do not contribute as much, but they do actually aid in bringing the essay or the bibliography, making it more comprehensive, making it more about the topic that's being covered because no single scholar or even two scholars when there have been co-authors, no matter how vast their knowledge can really hope to cover everything. And so it was always great that these other people said, include this as well. And that sort of input, we felt, should be recognized more than just saying thanks to anonymous scholars. So when somebody offers a bank of readings, it's up there in their referee report. And so, and then we see how it's incorporated into the second bibliography. They also sometimes had suggestions on how to organize the bibliographies because many times I believe the first round, the bibliographies were simple alphabetical compilations. And then later they became, you know, with the help of the peer reviewers, as well as thinking through the essay, I think when they went back to write it, they themselves started to organize it and write it that way. And also, one other thing I'd like to mention is that, you know, we gave them the option of either writing a argumentative, larger essay, which many people wrote. In fact, much some of them much larger than we'd asked for to begin with. And other people chose to rather make it sort of a 
concise, very directed introduction, almost like an annotated bibliography, not of individual sources, but an annotated bibliography of clusters of sources. And I think those are also equally useful. I wanted to emphasize one point that Nirja mentioned, and that is the way that the open peer review process changes in a subtle but crucial way the nature of peer review, the purpose of peer review. And what we've done is to turn peer review into a more collaborative event, not something that is, in many cases, almost competitive, where you have one author trying to demonstrate his or her chops to another author who's trying to get published. And I think there's a tendency in the open process to be much more, I don't know, giving. And there's a lot of critical commentary in these reviews, as you'll see, but they are done in ways, and Nirja and I enforce this, that make it so that neither the reviewer nor the reviewed is embarrassed by the content of these reviews. That's really interesting. Thank you. So this episode that we're recording now is intended as an introduction to a podcast series that will complement this special edition. What's the need for this podcast? How will it complement the other content you've just been describing? To me, one of the great things about this issue itself is that it's a living project. It's not sort of the be-all and end-all the minute it's published. In fact, especially given the fact that it's taken perhaps some time longer uh, than we originally intended for the issue to come out, people have already begun to update the bibliographies, especially people whose essays were approved more than a year ago. And uh, one of the things that came up when we did a brief session about the special issue and this project at HSS, many of the authors brought up the project that it is a living project. And I think a podcast helps keep it alive. That's one thing. The other thing I think is that as we already said with the open peer review, you're bringing in more people. What it does is to allow crosstalk between the author's and, uh, and often reviewers, since the podcast series is going to feature reviewers as well as authors in each episode, it will allow them to actually be in conversation besides only reading the work. And I think this is really, really important. One of our authors, Rebecca Fleming, I was just reading her essay as a brush up for this conversation, you know, described our project really beautifully, the collection as a set of overlapping projects. And what she said was within each, there are strong internal connections that bear further scrutiny. And that's why one writes the single essay and that's why one looks into a single bibliography. But to then open up the topic, hers, for example, it's titled Pandemics in the Ancient Mediterranean World. So it's very focused chronologically, classical times, ancient times, also geographically to the Mediterranean world, and to some extent even topically because pandemic in the eras she's covering were largely due to the plague. Now, of course, there's a question, and she problematizes this beautifully in her essay, about 
whether or not, you know, it can even be called a pandemic or epidemic, because you're talking about the Mediterranean world, not the whole world, but it was the known world to at least those people then. So they were thinking of it. To them, it was a pandemic, even if now with the Whiggish sort of looking back, the Mediterranean world was a very small part of the larger globe. But indeed, if you look further, there are connections. But that was just one of the, uh, I mean, I've digressed a little, but to get back to it, it was to allow conversations and with the aid also of keeping alive the project among or between various authors and reviewers whose essays are interconnected or overlapping in some way. Stephen. Sure. To further that point, the podcast does seem to be a good forum for increasing the collaborative nature of this project, the, the, the power of scholars to get together, to come to a view of a topic that's bigger than any of them uh, alone. And so the podcasts, we hope, will begin to do that and build, build up some collaborations between people, but also some bigger, bigger pictures. The other thing that's, I think, useful about the podcast that makes it different from the essays and the bibliographies that are produced is that in the podcast, people can really begin to talk about and reflect on, perhaps more informally or in a more relaxed way, the actual importance of these topics. So it ceases to be simply just a resource for scholars that they can go to to work through things, but now becomes a way for our discipline to begin to talk about a really important and pressing global issue. Stephen, you described the production process, the Open Peer Review, and you mentioned that it had worked and you learned some things and it had changed the content that was produced. Can you say more about the lessons you've learned from this experiment? Sure. I guess there are both technical lessons and lessons about the nature of peer review, and I'll address those separately. So the technical lessons, I think, were very much that we can pretty quickly produce a publication system if we're not wedded to traditional publication forms. Uh, we can create a forum that's more than just a blog site, but that has the rapid turnaround that blogs and uh, online newsletters have. And so that was the first thing. And we were able to do it in a fairly sophisticated way so that we can organize the content according to these various essays and make things relatively easy to get to. So that's the technical issue. And I think there's maybe one other technical aspect that I can raise here. And that is that my initial goal was to take all of the bibliographic sources that were in these bibliographies and add them individually to the ISIS CB so that people could access them. It turns out that's more of a hurdle because of lack of staffing than I had initially anticipated. It just takes time and effort to make sure those bibliographic entries get into the bibliography individually. So what instead I've done is to try to make sure that those essays are accessible 
through the bibliography so that if you come to the bibliography, you're looking for something about pandemics in Southeast Asia, you come across near the top of the list a note that, hey, there is an essay here that is bibliographic that may give you more information than we have here in the bibliography. So that's, I think, a revelation for me, one that I think a lesson that I can now apply in other areas as well. The lesson that we learned, I think, from the peer review process, this open peer review process, is that by making it possible for anyone to see the reviews and by turning the review process into this more collaborative thing, we have forced ourselves to police what is being offered in these essays. We can't have a completely open process. We want the process to be collaborative, not antagonistic. And so we work hard to ensure that that is the case. Thank you. Nirja, do you want to add anything? Lessons learned? One of the big lessons learned is, of course, that how many different things are going on? I mean, uh, you know, I knew I didn't know very much about this field. I knew I knew, uh, but it was such a tip of the iceberg. And it's just been so eye-opening just to read through the essays and an incredible experience, really. So I really, really would like to thank all the authors and co-authors. And I'm really delighted that they're getting a chance to talk more about their contributions and how it relates to one another as we move through this. The other thing I learned is that no matter how much we try, I said this about individual authors, I can say this about us, they're going to be holes. And I think one of the reasons when we said a live project, you know, this is a first stop and it doesn't end here. In fact, we're already in conversation with people on covering some of the gaps. I mean, the continent of Africa is a huge gap in our essay collection and not for lack of trying and not for lack of scholarship. Largely, one might say it's even because pandemics have hit Africa particularly hard, and the people involved in the scholarship are in the scholarship, and they don't really have time to sit back and look at this historiographically, you know, bibliographically, to write an essay. Everybody who answered me just said, too many projects, sorry, but I'm getting there. I have been persistent, and I'm getting there. But there are other topics, like the role of environment in epidemics. And really, that raises the question, we chose pandemics and epidemics as a topic because of the topicality, the timeliness of it in 2020, when Stephen conceived of this idea. But really, Stephen may have opened a can of worms and let himself in for a much larger task because there are subjects out there like the environment and history of science, for example, that really need these sort of guided collections. I mean, I can imagine how useful this is. A final lesson learned is how very useful in unexpected ways this bibliography is. I've already asked Stephen for permission and I'm using it in a science writing class, actually, to just take students through the stages of compiling a bibliography, of writing a bibliographic essay, which I think is a marvelous exercise for students in any field 
So whether they're science students, which is whom I'm teaching this course to in our own field. And in fact, I think this may be about generating content, but if you look at the authorship, there are several essays, or at least a few essays, where the co-authors are either teacher and student, teacher and postdoc, or two postdocs who have been working on different aspects of the problem. And all the collaborators said that collaboration really helped in making the essay better. And then the open peer review adds an additional layer. So I think there's a lot to learn from even working as an editor on this essay, though I cannot hope to contribute an essay, a single essay to this collection myself. You know, I've learned a huge amount from everybody. So thank you, Stephen, for conceiving of this project. It has been definitely a very enriching project. And the students, the graduate students here who have worked with me to help me do a lot of the simple management of manuscripts and putting them in the right places online and such have also benefited a lot. And several of them said, oh, I didn't know that's how peer review worked. And making the open peer review accessible shows a lot of people how we do our business and what it all means. Nirja, can you say more about how the issue of language played out as you recruited contributors? Sure. This turned out to be an unexpected bonus. Like I mentioned earlier, when we began with uh, Vivek's essay, he uh, cited a lot of material, primary source material, in his actual essay, but of course that wasn't part of the bibliography in the regional Indonesia, Southeast Asia. But other scholars, when they started to write their essays, started to bring in readings in the region and regional languages that they were covering. So somebody who, uh, our author, uh, Jose Ragas, for example, who wrote an essay on Latin pandemics in Latin America, more broadly speaking, also brought in the scholarship written by people writing in Spanish and Portuguese. And the China scholars, the East Asia essay, had as extensive a bibliography of English language historiography, and I'm talking historiography, history articles, not so much you know, primary source articles, which all of us tend to know how to read, or we learn it for our particular field, right? But this is about the history that comes out of different parts of the world and the fact that this bibliography is giving us access, giving English language scholars access to scholars writing in other languages, but writing about the history. So we have a very extensive bibliography and a wonderful essay about German language literature. We have one which uh, on Italy and Italian language literature, which is which may seem very specific, but being as Italy was the epicenter for COVID in the West, it seemed like a good specific place to include. So this was something I thought really added, enriched, to use a word Stephen did earlier, enriched our collection because it brings in new collaborations as well, cross-language collaborations. Stephen, did you want to comment on the issue of language? The way in which it becomes important for me as the bibliographer is that it provides a 
way for us to strengthen these non-English language resources within the bibliography. The bibliography, because it comes from the United States, because I'm working on it with sources that are easy to get for me and accessible readily to me, and because I've got graduate students, who's, most of whom have English as their primary language, this resource tends to be predominantly English-based. I've worked hard to get collaborators in other language areas to contribute. I've got a, a collaborator who provides Italian language resources, and I've, I've gotten people uh, with German and Dutch uh, expertise as well. But this bibliographic collection goes a lot further than that. And uh, although it's sort of deeper, it does more. So I'm very pleased in that respect. So what are some of the challenges you faced in putting together this issue? One of the big challenges, of course, is that the project could go on forever and we need to put bookends and get an issue out. So we're very pleased with the collection that we have right now. We're very pleased that we have 18 marvelous essays, but already we realize that there are holes and that, you know, there are gaps in our uh, issue and there are also potentially some stragglers because of various reasons. There are delays unforeseen and some, some uh, due to obvious reasons. And so I think one of the challenges is how do we end the issue or rather how to keep the issue alive. And one of them is to continue releasing individual essays rather than future special issues, individual essays as and when they're completed on specific topics and they would be sort of supplements or additions to this main special issue. Uh, Stephen, would you like to add something? Sure. I guess the, the advantage of publishing online only means that the issue can be extended pretty much at will. And we can in a couple of years' time or in five years' time, add another another issue, another or another essay or two as we desire. So there is a, a great deal of flexibility in the way that we set forth on this uh, endeavor. I think open peer review uh, is a very important thing, but open doesn't mean unedited. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can see the whole correspondence behind the scenes. Uh, there's a lot of talk back and forth in order to make sure that what's posted by all parties is in a particular collaborative form that the tone is right and that uh, people aren't going to be embarrassed or uh, in any way injured by the conversation. Good. Thank you both for sharing your work, your ideas, and your perspectives with us. Thank you, Baba. Thank you very much. The ISIS Current Bibliography Special Issue on Pandemics is available online now. You can find that link and more resources for exploring this topic, as well as subsequent episodes in this podcast series at chstm.org. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine.